Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, Thomas Schreiner returns to talk about his new commentary on Revelation. We'll talk about his particular view on eschatology, some big picture questions about Revelation, like the shape and structure of Revelation, the authorship, and some big questions that people tend to ask. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Tom. We are brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. You can go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. We also have an offer that you can go to lifeway.com and you can get 40% off on up to three CSB Bibles with the promo code CGCSB. So that's Church Grammar CSB. The code is CGCSB. You can get up to 40% off on any CSB Bible at lifeway.com. And now, my conversation with Tom Schreiner. But first, no big deal. Tom Schreiner, you were the first guest ever on uh, Church Grammar. We did it in uh, we did it in the studio there at Southern Seminary. I don't know if I was allowed to sit in Al Mohler's seat, but I did uh, for that first one. So uh, at least you were there with me, so I felt safe. I was like, if Tom if Tom is in here with me, if you know if he shows up, Tom will. I never me. I so. never got uh, any pushback for doing that. So I take it this must be your one thousandth ep- episode, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I wish, but uh, it is going to kick off the new year. So how about that? It'll be it'll be the twenty twenty four kickoff. Okay. So right, it's still special. Yeah. Um, I think you kicked off maybe twenty two when we did the Bible translation thing too. So I like to I like to get Schreiner in after the new year. So when people are trying to make good decisions in their life and they think about podcasts, you know, right. get, get them introduced to you. So all right, y'all have you introduced me to them actually. Um, okay, well, let's talk about your Revelation commentary. I know you've been working on this for years. Uh, you and I have had uh, several conversations about it over the years, obviously, uh, with my work on Revelation. Um, you know, I may have gandered and just checked the index and seen if I was in there. So I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the reference to me in there. Yeah, I think I'd written the whole thing when your book came out. So I, yeah, but I did put it in there. But I was finished, basically, when your book was finally published. So... You've done all these different commentaries, right? And I think you're, I don't know how many books of the Bible you're approaching, but it's, you know, a lot of Paul's letters and some other things. Um, so what kind of led you into wanting to do a commentary on Revelation? Do you just love commentary work this much? Or was Revelation an, an interesting thing you wanted to jump into? Or what was it that kind of drew you to to doing this project? Yeah, I, so kind of an interesting story. Years ago, when I first started teaching at Azusa Pacific, I needed to teach an extra class to make money. So the first year I was there, I offered an introduction class. I didn't get enough students and it didn't take. So I said to myself, <laughs> very noble motive, I said, I got to teach a class that I know is going to make. So I said to myself, I'm going <laughs> to do the book of Revelation. This is back in like 1984, 1985. And honestly, what happened as I began to study it, some of my conceptions of the book changed, right? A lot. As I, the more I studied it, the more I realized, I don't really understand this book as well as I thought I did. So that set me on a journey where I became fascinated with Revelation. And the other thing that really interested me about it is I began to say to the students, you know, the What's most important about Revelation, it's in accord with the, the Christian gospel found with that in the rest of the canon and the rest of the New Testament. This is not mm-hmm. this is not like, oh, this is a totally different uh, content than we find. There's a focus on God as creator, uh, Jesus Christ as the redeemer, uh, the need for perseverance. I said these are very mainstream Christian themes dressed in apocalypse in the apocalyptic genre. So I think that's very important to see because I think, in, at least in popular circles, people are attracted to Revelation because it's going to do something new and even maybe a little bit weird. You know, it 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 can become a little bit right. like 
talking about UFOs for some people, right? It, it becomes extraneous. Yeah. Like what, what's the bizarre thing going on here? And that wasn't my interest in revelation at all. In fact, I know we're going to talk about the millennium, but my, I never started studying revelation because I had a great interest in the millennium because I actually don't have a great interest in the millennium. However, everybody <laughs> wants to talk about it with me, which I understand. Yeah. Well, and, and you, you even note in the preface, you know, that uh, over two millennia, there's not a lot new you can do at the end of the day. But there are a few things that I think at the very least, you, you know, it has that, um, let's name it the Shrinarian approach uh, to things, right? Where there's, uh, you know, you're thinking a little bit more um, synthetically. I think like we'll get to it, yeah, with the millennium stuff. But I think you're trying to synthesize things, which, you know, I think there's sometimes really helpful with a fresh reading of something and step back and go, you know, we've had these bifurcated debates forever about millennialism, for example, and maybe we need to actually think about, well, why is it that uh, people can read the Bible and come to totally different conclusions? Maybe it's somewhere in there are some shared, you know, some shared convictions. So I think you do that at least, you know, in certain places. So um, we're going to, we're going to save that though. We'll, we'll leave the readers, uh, we'll leave the listeners uh, saved for that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the structure. Cause I think something that you do with the structure is something that you know, when I was doing my work in Revelation, I there's so many questions that people ask me that I still don't have any, you know, Revelation is such a difficult book. And I remember when I did my interview at Cedarville, um, you know, one of the one of the trustees uh, is very interested in the book of Revelation. So he kept asking me questions. And two or three times I was like, honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm not the expert on Revelation. I'm the, I'm the kind of expert on the Trinity in Revelation. And uh, so I punted a few times on some of those kind of questions. But one that I, that I really came around to as I was studying was sort of how you, you talk about it as uh, recapitulation and symbolic sort of structure. Uh, to Revelation instead of kind of a linear account, which I think is really helpful. So maybe um, that's something we could flesh out first is just how you view the symbolic nature, the recapitulatory nature, where are some major scenes where you see that coming up and, and why do you think that that's uh, an important way to think about how Revelation structured? Yeah. Well, in a, in a way, those are two different things, but they're related. I mean, first I talk about symbolism. Yeah. When I was first taught, so it's a hermeneutical issue, when I was first taught about Revelation, I was taught, take it as literally as possible. But I realized at some point, wait a minute, that's cheating, right? That's hermeneutical. <laughs> you, can't, you can't make a rule like that in advance. That, that's, you've, you've already decided before you're even interpreting the literature that it's not, some, not symbolic or, is, or it's as... There is little, as little symbolism as possible, but but how do you decide that? Uh, you can only determine yeah. a genre of a, of a book by by reading it and trying to discern what's going on. So so that that was really uh, you know it's very basic. I mean, I, almost everyone who listens would agree, I think. But that was helpful to me, just given my background and to realize, yeah, the book is so infused with symbolism. And some of it's, everybody agrees the beast is symbolic. No one believes the beast is an animal. So that's easy, right? Mm -hmm. What Now, what the referent is, that, that can be debated. And I think, you know, so I'm doing the sim symbolism question first. I found the hardest chapters, actually, for me, were chapters 8 and 9, especially, and 16, where you have the, mm -hmm. the trumpet and bowl judgments, and you have these descriptions, these apocalyptic descriptions, but no commentary. Bauckham points out that Revelation stands apart from other apocalyptic books in that there's less explanation. And uh, so I, I was very curious because how do we interpret that symbolism? I was very curious about how it was received in the history of interpretation. So I read the, you know, the, some of the earliest commentaries and throughout history, you know, like the Venerable Bede and Ecumenius and so forth and so on. But what I found out, not, not surprising, right? Interpreters have struggled all through history to determine what those symbols mean. You know, I thought, I thought when I came into it, because I was doing a deeper dive, Maybe I'm going to discover something that's going to make this easier. But I left, which is, sort of fits with what you said, saying, okay, I said something in the commentary 
but revelation it's elusive at the end of the day I'm, sometimes when i'm reading revelation yeah. now i think now what did i say in my commentary <laughs> because this is this is <laughs> difficult so yeah and and just one more word on the symbolism say you come to the two witnesses okay that's some texts are harder right i mean obviously the beast is symbolic but how about the two witnesses so you see in the interpretive tradition some people say well the two witnesses are two literal people but then others like me i think it's symbolic of of, of the church and and i think there's a, that chapter 11 especially which is a sort of a hermeneutical parting of ways what do you do with the temple what do you do with the two witnesses what do you do with their death i hermeneutically i'm prepared from the rest of the book to see most of those scenes as more symbolic but i understand i mean even some of the earliest interpreters took the two witnesses to be two literal people so and they weren't averse to reading symbolically so the, right yeah so in terms in terms of the hermeneutical stance uh even if we all agree that it's symbolic and i think we should and most do then the referent to the symbolism is still hard and that's that's the challenge of the book so i want to say that on the one hand on the other hand i want to say the the, the essential message of the book is still clear uh but then then in terms of re recapitulation well again how much recapitulation you see is dependent on how you interpret things but i i understand for example the sixth seal to be a clear indication that it's the end of the world i mean he talks about the day of the lord the day of the wrath of god in the land and he, and the images of like every mountain being moved and the islands remo being removed though that's in revelation 16 and revelation 20 which are clearly both the end of the world so i think john gives us clues that it's he's he's recapitulating even in revelation 6 what's coming so i think a, a linear reading of the book is uh is really uh, uh unfortunate i think it misses it misses what god uh, what john's doing you know it's 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 somewhat impressionistic, right? He gives us quick uh, previews of history, and then then he backs up and does it again. So you know, at the end of the uh, trumpets, at the end of chapter eleven, it's the end again. Clearly, it's the end. It's uh, you know, it's the, the the song from Handel's Messiah, right? The kingdom of the Lord has become the kingdom of the world and as, and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. I mean, the book's over at the end of chapter. But then chapter 12, we have that great cosmic scene with the woman and the dragon. And uh, but again, for example, in chapter 14, he takes us to the end again and again. You know, the two harvests are both the end. So he often zooms to the end. The, the, the bowls are the end. Babylon's another description of the end. Then there's the last judgment and new creation. So. I think anybody who reads the book in a linear way, it's, I think that's a fatally flawed reading. So I know some interpreters would disagree with me there, but I think a, that reading is, I hope I don't sound too disrespectful, but a flat-footed flat reading of the, of the book. And of course, I'm not the first to say it's, there's recapitulation, but I, I try to emphasize that because I think in all the detail, when we're reading a commentary, we can we can miss that. You know, Hendrickson's little commentary, which I think I disagree with in some respects, but I think he rightly saw the recapitulatory nature of the book. It's just some of the individual decisions he makes along the way. I mean, Hendrickson says there's seven seven recapitulations. I don't I don't see that exactly. Uh, I wish I did see it. Maybe he's. It's very. It's very nice to see seven. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's easy, it's easy. Just sevens everywhere. You know, sevens as far as the eye can see. Which, to be fair, Revelation likes the number seven. So I, I'm absolutely and uh, and that's another thing. Do we take the numbers some uh, as literal? Well, I think I think it's those numbers are so clearly symbolic, and you could 
go off on the seven spirits of God, right? Um, I could anytime. <laughs> I mean, no, it's very striking to me. You know, this is something you you could jump into as well. But it was striking to me when I read, uh, you know, ver- chapter one, verses four through six, and it talks about the seven spirits. And great interpreters like Ani and Kester say, well, it's angels. But they never, they never answer the theological question, how could grace and peace come from an angel? But they don't even... They don't even acknowledge the question, is it? And they're and they're great. And I mean, I learned so much from Kester and Ani, but theologically, they don't even ask that question, you know, which I think is right. a big problem for their view. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, there's uh, the angel view. I mean, some of that comes, you know, depending on, and this is a good kind of uh, transition too to thinking about like, you know, a lot of those questions come from, well, comparing it to, Second Temple Judaism and other types of apocalypses where, you know, Enoch has seven angels. Um, you know, so there, there's this kind of like, oh, well, maybe that's where it's coming from is on the outside. Um, so I, I do want to pitch that question to you of, of thinking about those related apocalypses, the sort of Second Temple literature and other ideas, because I dealt with that a lot in my dissertation. A lot of it got cut before the um, IBP publication of it. Uh, in part because it didn't advance the thesis in the same way. And also, I just got so tired of reading. I had to learn. Uh, I had to learn is a strong word, but I had to kind of learn Ge'ez so I could read First Enoch in its extant uh, manuscripts. Wow. And that's still kind of like the most traumatic. That's the most traumatic experience of my of my PhD. So, um, but there is a lot of that sort of, you know, well, maybe that's how we understand Revelation is we have these other, you know, contemporary sources or other types of apocalypses that maybe John was reading. So um, how do you think through the relationship between what might he have been reading? What was some of the ideas that may have been in the air that show up in other texts and the extent to which John is doing something kind of unique? Because I think that is that is a really important thing is they're all kind of a lot of them are drawing on Daniel, but they're doing it in different ways. Right. And I think that's where the son of man language comes in, what you do with angelic figures. So how do you think through some of those issues? Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, as everyone would say, I mean, the first thing I want to say, of course, Revelation is infused with the Old Testament, which is one reason so many struggle with interpreting the book, because generally speaking, our knowledge of the Old Testament is is weak. And so we we we, right. we don't appeal to that. But do in terms of Second Temple and Greco-Roman literature, I I think Paul, I mean John was uh influenced by those. Um yeah, I mean we know from reading Jude that he was reading First Enoch. So I think to investigate those parallels in both the Second Temple world and the Greco-Roman world is helpful. I don't think we should ignore that. I think it can feed into what the author is doing. But but my caution is, at the end of the day, we have to determine the meaning in terms of the context and the flow of argument and the whole of what Revelation is saying. So the, the danger... And I think sometimes this is true, especially of Ani, is uh, extra biblical traditions sort of control his reading in a way that I don't think yeah. is warranted. I mean, I learned a ton reading Ani and Kester. I think I think Kester's more balanced than Ani, actually. But yeah, but sometimes they use the extra biblical literature in a way I think that uh, ignores the most likely reading in context. And I think the Seven Spirits. Uh, text is is one example of that yeah i mean we do have it it could be angels i mean after all the word penumata often means angels right uh even in even in the new testament so and and the uh other apocalyptic texts and in second temple judaism they, they should be consulted that's that's interesting but at the end of the day what is the most likely meaning contextually? Surely, you know, to say, using this as our example again, to say that the seven spirits could be the seven angels, well, that's that's not a ridiculous interpretation. But it has but it but it finally yeah. it finally faces, I think, problems in terms of what John is doing. So it's a delicate balance. It's interpreting as an art. It's not we it's not easy. And I'd be the first to say, 
I know there are things in there that I wrote that are wrong, but I don't know what they are. Are <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have written them, right? Right, right. <laughs> but I, there's no way I you, there's no way I got everything right in Revelation. So and so we're all we're all doing the best we can. I think we we profit from reading these other sources, but so it's a matter of hermeneutical uh, delicacy and artistic ability, and we're. And that's, that's why it's so great to have a community of scholars. I, I learn, I mean, I read so many things on Revelation and I, even my, the people I disagreed with the most, I learned something from them. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, Ani's a great example of somebody that there were so many times where I was like, ah, man, there's just a lot. I mean, he was at one point he was getting deep into like Egyptian magic papyri. And I was like, this is just, I'd never even heard of this before when I was reading it. And then I came across this one point, I was like, you know, in a roundabout way, he kind of, he would totally disagree with me. And yet somehow this magic papyri does kind of agree with my point. You know, it's just the way all those, those things get filtered together. But he's a good example. Kester, you know, you said he's more balanced. He's a good example too of, you know, some of it is your presuppositions, you know, where do you start? So like somebody like me, and I think somebody like you as well, we're going to start with the canon of scripture, right? And so for seven spirits, you can get that from... Um, Zechariah and some other places too, besides extra biblical text, right? So then it's kind of like, well, I think that John primarily is trying to interpret the Hebrew scriptures and how his his prophecy is, or his his vision is in a sense, this culmination of these former prophecies or these things that have been said before. So to me, that's the controlling function. And then the other things on the peripheral are interesting and maybe informative. Um, but for some people, right, like you said, they're going to use primarily, we only understand revelation in light of extra biblical texts. And those are two very different ways of approaching it. Yeah. And I think of, you know, an Ani and a Kester, thank God for them, but their approach to this biblical text is right. A, a historical critical approach from, and we can learn much from that, but I think me and you, we're coming to, to the scriptures with, People define this in different ways, but with a theological interpretation of scripture perspective. And that, that I think, is bracketed out of the way they're approaching the text. So we can learn from them, but they can also learn from us. Yeah. It's amazing how it could go both ways, right? You know, so. <laughs> okay, so one thing that gets brought up a lot, and I feel like in the one, you know, you would think it would be a well-worn issue, but it's really not, which is authorship. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned that you uh, view the author as the Apostle John, and you mentioned that's that's a minority view. And, you know, in sort of critical biblical studies, it is the minority view, right? Um, but then I was thinking, like, I was trying to think through, I mean, it's been a while since I've looked at this, but I think, um, you know, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement, uh, Hippolytus, I think the uh, well, the Mortorian canon maybe doesn't get into that, but there's a lot of early figures that all seem to think it was the apostle, um, you know, and it seems to be relatively assumed for a lot of Christian history. And then eventually, um, you know, as many of these things do, authorship gets questioned for all different reasons. So um, how did you think through some of the authorship issues? I mean, one of the things you mentioned that I think is really helpful is just the relation, you know, how clearly themes and ideas are related to other Joannine texts, you know, that we would tend to attribute to the apostles. So how did you think through that both contextually, historically, literarily? How'd you kind of come to the conclusion that you think John is uh, the apostle is the author? Yeah. So I would say, I would say two things. I think it's most natural when he says John without any further attribution. I think the earliest readers and receivers of the book would naturally think of the apostle John. But secondly, the, the testimony, especially of Irenaeus, is very important to me because, and, and I talk about this in the book, Irenaeus knew Polycarp and Polycarp knew John. Now, Kester says, well, Irenaeus got things wrong. And of course, I'm sure he did. But, but I would say, I think it's really unlikely he got something like that wrong. Polycarp knew. Yeah, that's a different type of detail to get yeah. wrong. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, he, Irenaeus would have known Polycarp when he was 15, 20, 25 years old. Well, I remember I became a Christian when I was 17. Now I'm 69. I remember some of those things much better when I was young than I do what happened three weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> because they're impressed on your mind, and especially Polycarp knowing John, and then Polycarp telling Irenaeus about it. 
I just don't think that's something he would have gotten wrong. So that the testimony of Irenaeus is important to me. Of course, the big objection is the style is so different. I I'm happy with saying I don't I don't. Is there a nice, neat, satisfactory answer to all those questions? I don't think so. But I, but I think at the end of the day, it's it's apocalyptic. It's like it's a completely different genre than the gospel and the epistles. And of course, as you know, Brandon, many people, I mean, they don't think the apostle wrote the gospels or the epistles either. So, so one, <laughs> right. one yeah. debate leads to another. Um, but I, I just think, I, I don't think it's a matter of orthodoxy. I th- I, if I remember right, Beale is not very committed on it being the apostle John, but it just says John. So I don't, I, I, I just think it's a matter of likelihood. So I, th- I think it's most likely the apostle. And I think it's maybe there's a little bit of um, in the scholarly world, maybe I'm wrong. It's, it sounds a little too simplistic to say John the apostle wrote it, maybe a little too traditional. I, I, I wouldn't die for it, if, for it since it doesn't say it's the apostle. I just think it's the most likely reading of the evidence. And I and agree, you know, that's the early church tradition. The early church understood it that way. And I do have, the, I tend to think, can they make mistakes? They can make mistakes. But I tend to uh, give credence to that tradition. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's it's not until, uh, was it Dionysius of Alexandria, I think, in the third century where you even see it questioned at all. Um you know, and then even then you've got sort of uh, Eusebius and others. So, you know, there's, you know, Revelation has a sordid history in the in the history of the church at some level. But, you know, like you said, when you get to the earliest of the earliest, like somebody like Irenaeus, especially, um, you know, they're, they're still question. I mean, Hebrews is another one where, and you know, this better than than I do. Um, there's uh, I think that I, you can correct me on this. Do you think it's fair to say that there was more diversity on the authorship of Hebrews than revelation at least early yeah, on i think that because i feel like doesn't barnabas get doesn't barnabas yeah i think that's i think that is totally true that there was a more diversity and also yeah revelation begins to be questioned after montanism and uh certain interpretations mm-hmm. people began to worry for legitimate reasons wow this book's being used in really bizarre ways and uh <laughs> right. so, I think that's part of why, you know, early we see it being said to be by John, but then Montanism's coming along and some crazy, crazy things are being said. And there's, there's worry about how this book is being appropriated. And then, and then, which is fair enough. (laughs) He does see, I mean, it's funny, you know, scholars today still rely on his stylistic arguments. I mean, he's a very good reader. The style is different. There's no doubt about it. But in one way, it's different. But in another way, you know, I always tell my students, and you know this, I said, you know, some rules are broken, but the Greek's very easy. Uh, you know, I'm not, it, it, it re, it's like, it's kind of like the Gospel of John and First John. And it's, it's, you know, maybe kind of, if you want to use the word like primitive or whatever, but it's not, it's not like reading First Peter or Jude. Right. It's yeah. the Greek is, is 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 it's it's apocalyptic and different, but it's not it's not difficult. It's not it's not like you're reading Hebrews, you know. Suddenly, you know, if you read the Gospel of John and you read Hebrews, <laughs> yeah. you think this is definitely a different author. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think even uh, you know you think of some of the themes. I mean, the most obvious one people think about is the Lamb, which doesn't show up anywhere else except for. Gospel of John and Revelation and and the life and light and some of those kind of themes. And so there even are some, you know, some themes that are similar, even if they're kind of positioned differently. Yeah. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The ruler of this world will be cast out, you know, John 12, 31, John 16, and then Satan's cast out, Revelation 12. Now that that depends on your interpretation of what's going on in Revelation 12. But yeah. No, and then he's thrown in the lake of fire in 20, right? I mean, there's a couple of castings going on there. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. We've hinted around at your eschatology, uh, your fancy new eschatology that you're, uh, that you're doing here. <laughs> it's not really fancy new, but it is, I think it is helpful. Um, so you're, you're trying to, to 
and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like when I'm reading it, at least I'm getting the impression of, hey, there's some true things in premillennialism. There's some true things in amillennialism. You know, you you uh, kind of famously have have been between those two positions at various times in your in your uh, career. Um, and it seems like you fi- maybe you finally got to the point where you're like, hey, maybe the reason why I'm wrestling between these two is that there's maybe a little bit of truth in both of them. Maybe there's you know maybe maybe that's kind of influencing. So how did you? Was there some sort of well, maybe you could explain it a little bit and then talk about, you know, how'd you come to it? Was there like an aha moment? Was it a long kind of just drawn out process or so what's, what's your big view? And then how, what are some ways that, what are some things that got you there? Well, yeah, you, I mean, you're, first of all, you're exactly right. I'm wrestling with, I've, I've been pre, pre-millennial and I've been millennial, and I'm thinking, wow, there's truth in both of these. What's going on here? And, um, and then this new creation millennialism, which I didn't come up with, uh, as I read it, I thought, I think this is right. It's sort of a via media between between the two. Although it's funny, when I talk to all millennialists, I'll say, oh, you're just pre-millennial now. And uh, so <laughs> people, you know, people are very, and I understand it, ensconced in their traditions. Um, I th- and I think most pre-millennialists just think I'm a little crazy. Um, but so, so here's sort of an easy way to put it, I think. When I read Revelation 20, I feel like the amillennial reading that the binding of Satan took place at the cross, that's possible. But in my mind, and it's symbolic language, of course, what's happening in Revelation 20. But in my mind, that the binding sounds in context more radical than what we see in Matthew 12, where the, Jesus binds the strong man. And the second thing is the most natural way, I think, to take the, the first resurrection is that it's physical. I mean, you know, N.T. Wright's fabulous book on the resurrection, he basically says anastasis always means, always means physical resurrection. Then he comes to Revelation 20 and he says, not here. Uh, well, I'm sympathetic. <laughs> right. I, I'm sympathetic with that in many ways because actually my whole theology fits with the kind of amillennial reading. But I just struggled exegetically. I mean, Doug Moose said to me, which was helpful as I was working on it, I'm sure he doesn't even remember him saying this to me, but we were doing a conference together and he said, you know, Tom, sometimes we just don't know how all the pieces fit. We try to make them fit. And then we force it. And I thought, yeah, I, my amillennial friends won't like this, but I, am I, I think maybe what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make my amillennialism fit in the Revelation 20. Meredith Klein's art, argument, which Greg Beale picks up, is brilliant. But I, I really just don't think that's what that text is saying. But then on the other hand, my problem with the premillennial readings is, so when you look at, Ezekiel 40 through 48, the, you know, the new temple, you look at Isaiah 60 and 62 about Jerusalem, all all those texts are in the new creation. They're not in the millennium. And like, these are the standard premillennial texts, like the prophecies are going to be fulfilled in the millennium, but they're not in the millennium. They're in the new creation. So then, um, so a guy named Webb Mealy did his dissertation on this. And uh, I don't agree with Webb on everything. He, he, so I just got to say this. I, I almost hate to bring it up. But everybody asks me if I'm an annihilationist because he is. I'm like, what? Right. <laughs> so I get that all the time now. I'm like, no, I don't agree with him on everything. But I think his new creation millennialism has, uh, has a lot of uh, – it's, it's helpful. I don't even agree with every move he makes to get there. And then Eckhart Schnabel has written an article on this. I don't know if you saw this article, Brandon, in, in uh, chats about a year or two ago. He, uh, he wrote a short article summarizing this view. And it's also in his view, 40 questions about the Bible in the future, whatever that book's called, uh, in that yeah, 40 yeah. questions series. And then just to, this is a little bit of history. Someone pointed out to me, and the little bit I've read, I think it's true that it looks like John Gill may have held a view like this. Isn't that interesting? 
Hmm. When you read him, it'd be nice for us Baptists. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't call it that, but it sounds very similar. And I'm not honestly full confession. I've hardly read anything by John Gill. I don't know much. Of, I mean, I know he's famous, but and a very beloved by Reformed Baptist people. But I've never. I don't have time to read everything, and I've just never read him. But the little bit I saw there. So, so d- let me explain the view a little bit. In the, so, in the new creation millennialism, the millennium, Jesus returns, right, physically, and the new creation begins, and the millennium is the first age of the new creation. Therefore, contrary to premillennialism, there's no unglorified saints on earth, right? Everybody. All the wicked are judged, the end of Revelation 19. All the righteous are glorified. And the wicked are destroyed, all of them. So, you know, premillennialists, historic premillennialists, dispensational premillennialists, they have to have find a way to get some unglorified people into the millennium, right? But I, but that's not the most natural reading of the end of Revelation 20, I'd argue. But the, so, so you have, uh, what, the, the thousand years don't have to be literal. Maybe they are. I don't, that's not a concern of mine. There's a period, at least. Uh, we have all the blessings of the new creation. So, so one thing I like, all the millennial readings of those Old Testament prophecies are true of my millennial view. You know, the new temple, the new temple is the, the universe a la Greg Beale. The New Temple is the people of God. So I can follow, because I like what Beale says about that and, and other all-male people. There is, no, there is no physical, literal temple being built. That's the wrong reading of Ezekiel 40 through 48. Um, the kings bringing their wealth into Jerusalem, you know, that's symbolic of what's happening in the new creation. So I have all that. The big objection is, and it's the problem. Every view has problems. So I'm not dogmatic about this view at all. You know, if I'm wrong, I won't be the least bit surprised. But the big objection is, so what do you do with that? And that's the hardest problem. What do you do with that 1,000 year uh, later, even if it's symbolic, rebellion? But but I think there, I'm attracted to this solution. While Satan is released after a 1,000 years, the dragon, and and the and the wicked dead are resurrected, verse 5. So the argument is they join Satan for an attack on the righteous. Now, the, the, here's the objection. Like, what in the world? I mean, what do you mean? You're attacking glorified saints? It's useless. It's fruitless. It's, it's besides the point. And, and we're in the new creation. There's no evil left. Well, I'm arguing it's a little bit messy. In the millennium, whatever your view is, a little bit messy. There is evil is not completely exterminated until the first age of the new creation is ends. So yeah, it's there's a little bit of an overlap. So that's that would fit with that kind of a pre-mill understanding. Secondly, why would why would there even be such an attack? My argument is evil's insane. Evil makes no sense. Evil's fundamentally self-destructive. If at some level, when we sin, when I sin, say, I, I just use this example, say I'm not treating my wife well, which are, at times I don't, you know, maybe I'm I'm not kind to her. I know in myself, I as a Christian, I know this is not, even, this is hurting me even, you know, but sometimes in my foolishness, I continue in, on that course. Well, I'm a believer. Satan's, Satan and unbelievers, they're, I'm not talking in clinical terms, they're crazy. That evil, evil implodes upon itself. So it shows us, what, what's it there for? It shows us at the end of the day, the insanity of evil, the utter futility of evil. I mean, Satan's cast out of heaven in Revelation 12. I'm not saying that's the same period, but I'm illustrating the point. But he's... He rages against the saints, even though he knows his time is short. Well, I mean, that's insane. 
right? And again, I'm not speaking clinically. It, it makes no sense. So, we, you know, we see a dramatic example of the senselessness and futility of evil. That doesn't persuade everyone. I understand. Um, that's my best shot. Um, happy to follow up. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. So, so new creation has two stages, at least. Um, the first stage being what people typically think of as the millennium, the reign of the future reign of Christ. Um, so you think that all is the first stage of new creation, not this pre new creation idea. When is, when is Satan cast into the lake of fire? Is this after the rebellion and then new Jerusalem comes down and that's like new creation that we typically think of like the second stage or how do you work through that little transition there from thrown into the lake of fire to, uh, to uh, the, the New Jerusalem coming down? Yeah, I, I mean, I would see actually uh, the New Jerusalem, I don't think Revelation 20 and 21 are strictly linear in that way. I think there's an overlap between the New Jerusalem okay, yep. coming down and the millennium. So I don't, I don't understand John to be saying, and then comes the New Jerusalem because, because the millennium is part of the new creation. So I think the New Jerusalem is already there. That that's how I understand it. So there's more more overlap. The new creation is is realized. So in a, in one sense, for the for the saints, their experience doesn't change. When the after Satan, it, in a way, it's just a blip on the radar for them. Life goes on as it did at the beginning of the new creation. We're in the new creation once the millennium starts. So. Yeah, that could be another, already resurrected, already glorified. Yep, already in the, the 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 world, the New Jerusalem has arrived. But now, but there is a point where Satan and the wicked dead are removed permanently. So you know, you know, another. I mean, another view out there that I thought was intriguing. I just couldn't make sense of it at the end of the day. Is some people would say, I understand Matheson to say this, who I've never met, but I like a lot of his stuff on revelation, but it's sort of like it's symbolic and it's sort of like, it's some sort of ideal description and we can't really do anything with it. We can't map it onto any chronological scheme. Yeah, maybe that's right. It just seems like, I don't know what to do with that view. So, yeah. Well, when you're on a commentary, you got to say a little bit more too. Right. So, (laughs) part of the genre. Um, okay. So, uh, thinking about, uh, thinking about the relationship between the old Testament promises and the new Testament, cause you did mention, you know, some of those are kind of falsely seen as some sort of in between. You'd say, actually, these are new creation type passages. What's a, what are maybe a couple of examples of that where you'd say, if we read these differently, we'll understand the new creation language at the end a little differently. Yeah, well, I guess I I want to go back to Ezekiel forty through forty eight, especially. You know, that's that's a text. Well, even pre, many pre millennialists right see that as symbolic, uh, because there it's only mentioned in the new creation. I think there are good arguments. Dan Block makes this argument in his Ezekiel commentary that even Ezekiel did not envision a literal temple being built. So I, th- I think it's hermeneutically instructive that that John puts that in the in the new creation, and then uh, you know passages like Isaiah sixty and sixty two, Isaiah two. Uh, I, I think all those passages are ultimately fulfilled as as well in in the new creation. Um, you know, if you take something like it's not a prophecy per se, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but you know that the temple in First Kings is a cube, but the but the the New Jerusalem is a cube, right? It's showing us it's a it's it's a temple, so uh, the whole world is God's temple. So I think there, I mean, most of the language that John appropriates in 21 and 22, he picks up that temple language. The language, you know, with all the pearls and and the jewels and the streets of gold, and I think John's picking up temple language and 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 appropriating it to the new world 
And, you know, C.S. Lewis said, reading Revelation 21 and 22, I don't remember where this is. I, I hope this is an accurate quote. I think it is. Something like, if you take that literally, you don't know how to read literature. <laughs> and I actually, that sounds a little snobby, but I think it's actually right that it, it, the whole, you know, he picks up the, well, here's another interesting passage that just struck me. So the new heavens and new earth passage in Isaiah. Here, I think Greg Beale is exactly right, because it says in Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, it, it talks about a person dying at 100. So the premillennialists will say, well, that can't be the new creation, but it's new heavens and new earth. And Greg has a long article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, I think saying, no, even in Isaiah, that language of of someone dying in a hundred ought not to be taken literally because there's no weeping and and, and the serpent is put aside. So I think the problem, even in Isaiah, and is when you read that literally, look, you if you love your grandpa, you're going to cry when he dies if he's a hundred, because <laughs> you're going to really miss him. You know, you're not going to be like, well, it's the millennium. You know, it's okay. I think instead, it's the whole context, and I think Greg makes this case is clearly. Um, I think symbolic. And here, you know, again, I refer people to Greg's article and there's where the, I think the Amel read these Old Testament texts rightly. It's, it's the new world coming. No crying, no tears, children playing in the streets. It's a beautiful picture of, of the new world that is coming. And the mistake we make is we take a picture like that and overly literalize it. And, 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 you know, we see that in Isaiah, right? Isaiah says in one place, you know, the, the kid will play by the snake's den. And then in another place, he says the snakes won't be there. Well, they're pictures. We're, we're, we're not to literalize pictures like that. There is, now, in case, I, there is a real reference, you know? Some people say, oh, you're, you're becoming maybe liberal or something. You're not, you're symbolic. No, I, I, there's a real reference. There's a real new creation. I'm not, I'm not saying it's symbolic. There's no meaning to that text. Yeah, but you got to read it. You, it's the classic, you know, part of reading literally is reading it the way that it's literally trying to communicate, which is not always what we think of as literally, right? Yeah, yeah so, exactly. There's theology and other things in yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. All right. I, I almost avoided this, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. Let's talk about 666. Let's talk about the Antichrist. Um, I know that you take uh, Tim LaHaye's version as gospel. And so I think that might be the first thing <laughs> surprises everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, so you, I did think you brought an interesting point to it because there, there, you know, everybody knows this at this point, you know, there's a billion ways of viewing the 666 and it's at the Antichrist is the beast, a different figure than the Antichrist or there are many Antichrists. And one of the things that you do, I mean, there's two, two assumptions that you, that you bring in one, you bring in sort of a grammatical argument right about um, just the idea of him being a human and things like that, which I think is interesting for you to flesh out. And also that 666 is the number, right? Because you've got the, the manuscript variant of 616 and some people jump on that. Um, so yeah, talk through some of those kind of um, manuscript and grammatical things that you bring out. Because I think that's part of what it ends up influencing your view. Uh, and then maybe you know expand how you want from there of, of how you view the uh, what 666 is and who that is and how we should think about the beast. Yeah. Well, the history of interpretation, right? Many, many different names have been put forth. I think that's a good place to start. And uh, so far, every precise prophecy, people have been wrong, right? Uh, this has happened all through history. Right. <laughs> I read particular books that, you know, just went through all the all the people who have been mentioned throughout history. But, you know, in our day, Brandon, the closest, you know, people didn't say this, but I've always thought of this, Ronald Wilson Reagan. Every one of those names is six letters, you know? So anyway, I'm kidding, obviously, but um, it is interesting that he was the president and each of his names had six letters. <laughs> but nobody, you know, it wasn't popular in evangelical circles to identify him as such, you know? 
So, you know, it was people like Henry Kissinger and John F. Kennedy and stuff like that. If you if you've been in those circles. So, so but in terms of scholarship, the most popular view in the scholarly community is that it's Nero. So if you, if, and, right. you know, in, in, in Greek and Hebrew, you can use the letters of a person's uh, names and translate them into numbers. And if you put Nero's uh, name into Hebrew, it translates into 666. Uh, with, I mean, there's some technical details there. Yes, it's difficult though, because there's this alternative reading 616, which, you know, Irenaeus talks about as well. You know, Irenaeus said very early, uh, by the way, as we're talking about this, because he, he said, well, who is 616? And he said, Latin, I'm putting in in English, and maybe Titan. But then, but then Irenaeus said, very good interpreter, he said, you know, we probably won't know if you take it to be a particular person. We won't know who this person is until it's fulfilled, which I thought showed a lot of hermeneutical sophistication. But the typical historical critical view is that it's uh, Nero. There was a tradition in those days that Nero was going to come back as uh as the Roman emperor. So, you know, you see that in Bauckham's reading, you see it in uh, Kester's reading, and and it's the, the most uh, common reading. The problem, I think a big problem with that tradition, however, is that um, in the tradition that was being circulated, Nero had not been put to death, you know? Whereas in Revelation, there's a death and then coming back to life. So the you know, the, we have this example, which we talked about earlier, of using extra biblical traditions, but they don't match exactly. So um, so I, I want to argue that when he says it's the number of an anthropos, an anthropu, a man, that he's saying, if we think of symbolism, 777 would be the perfect number, and 666 would represent uh, evil and imperfection. So he's s- simply saying the this kingdom, the kingdom of this beast, I think there will be a final person heading it, but this kingdom is the epitome of evil. It is, uh, it's the instantiation of evil in, in our day. Uh, and, and if we map first john onto this there are antichrists and the antichrist so we have a we have a recapitulation of the beast too so i think the first beast was rome and but i think there'll be a final antichrist but i don't think 1318 we'll find out but i don't think that's helping us discern the individual person i think it's talking about the kingdom as a whole, the state. So I, I preached a sermon on this years ago before I ever came to Southern when I was in Minnesota, and I titled my sermon, The State as the Antichrist. And I'm not arguing all states are the Antichrist. I'm just arguing that I think that's, he views Rome as totalitarian and the beast at the end of the day. So Yes, yeah, I think he thinks it's an individual, but I think the focus is actually more corporate in the chapter than individual. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's a helpful way. I mean, it's a little bit different. I think. Uh, let's see, Lad takes a view similar to that. Is that right? Am I thinking right? Neil does. I can't remember what Lad said. Like to be honest, yeah. Um, I uh, I was thinking too. You brought up uh, Irenaeus, and you know he brings up. If I'm remembering right, he brings up that variant. And he has all these reasons for why he thinks 666 is correct. And he does like numerical, there's all kinds of things he does as Irenaeus will do. And then I think, isn't one of his, one of his just like, actually all the men that knew John face to face thought it was 666. Like he, he appeals to sort of his knowledge of the apostolic tradition and even maybe the, the, you know, what he's learned from Polycarp or whatever, where he kind of just says, yeah, that's what everybody, everybody that read John, everybody that knew John thought that's what it was too. So it's probably 666, which I thought is just an interesting almost aside in the middle of all of his, you know, defense. Yeah, for that, so. yeah. I was just struck how, how sane of an interpreter he was at that point. And, um, 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. Was it? I mean, when you think of these things, I think it was, I think it was Hippolytus who said the Antichrist is actually the second beast, if I remember right. You know, it's just the history of the history of interpretation, which that'd be a. I mean, there are the commentaries out, but uh, there's so much fascinating stuff out there about that. I mean, Revelation is so overwhelming. You know, there's so much out there. Yeah. For, for everybody. It always has been. You know, that's the, like you said, even even the way that it, you know, some of some of the reasons why people questioned it was because it was just so hard to understand and so many weird things came out of it. Uh, you know, so, and that happens today, right? We've got our own, uh, we've got our own uh, versions of that today where people get uncomfortable reading Revelation or something like that because it feels weird or it, does, it feels disconnected. Um, so how would you, this is kind of my last question that leads right into it. You know, one of the things that you're doing in your commentary and all your work, I think you always do a great job of saying, here's the scholarly rigor, but here's why it matters for the church, trying to help a pastor who's trying to prepare a sermon. So as you're thinking about people, you know, wanting to preach Revelation or think clearly about it, what are some some guidelines you'll give them to try to understand it better, to not get too overwhelmed by it, you know, aside from buying your commentary, which would be a great idea. But what are some uh, what are some big categories you'd give them to help them uh, think rightly about it as they get into the kind of minutia of the text itself? Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to say is, yeah, thinking of people ignoring it, isn't it interesting that Calvin never wrote a commentary on Revelation? Maybe that's why. Uh, but, but I would say yeah. uh, for teaching and preaching and discipleship, Think, think of the big themes of, of the book. They're very helpful to the church. God, God is the sovereign creator, chapter four, but really throughout the book. God, God rules over history. To, for suffering believers, that's a great comfort. Divine sovereignty isn't taught for intellectual reasons, but for pastoral reasons. And then at such crucial places in the book, right? In one, four through six, right at the beginning. In chapter five, the the the, the lamb taking the scroll from the from God. Uh, chapter seven, who are those who escape the great tribulation? Those those whose robes have been whitened by the blood of the lamb. Chapter 12, why is Satan cast out of heaven? It's the cross. So the cross of Christ plays such a central role in this book, which is what we'd expect. It's a Christian book, the cross and the resurrection. Yeah. Right. Jesus, Jesus has defeated death. Uh, and, and, uh, we finally win. And then you look at the seven churches, which really infuse the whole book. I think the churches are tempted. There's conflict and there's compromise. So there, there's conflict with the world and there's temp, they're tempted to compromise. Well, that's, we we face that today, conflict and compromise. We face that as well. And then Revelation teaches evil, evil will finally be dethroned. God will set everything right. We we need to know that. I mean, look look what's happening in the world today. It's we all realize it's a mess, and uh, in many ways, it's always been a mess. But God God's going to set things right. Justice will reign. History is not just sound and fury, as Shakespeare said, signifying nothing. But there's there's finally a resolution, and and there's a great hope uh, for for believers. So even the even the passages on judgment, I mean, they're written to believers. They're a call. I would say those passages on judgment are a call for the believers not to switch sides. They're they're called to persevere. He's not. I don't think. John's exulting in the judgment of the wicked. He's, he's also saying to the righteous, it matters what choices you make in a very stressful world. So that that's what excites me most about Revelation. I think the message is uh, very practical and encouraging and realistic. Uh, it's a realist. He, he realistically uh, portrays for us the, the, the kind of world we live in. It's 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 a messy, messy place. Yeah, well, that's really helpful, and I think that that can get you, uh, you know, from the doom and gloom reading of Revelation, which you know, there's some parts of that where you're like, yeah, there's some doom and gloom in there, right? But that there's this ultimate hope of new creation, right? That's the that's the key. So if we can get people there, that that'd be really helpful. 
So, um, yeah, that's where it ends. They see your face. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Um, as always, I always love talking to you and uh, you've always been such a help to me over the years in my career and my life. So I uh, appreciate you taking some time and hopefully people will pick this up and, and be helped by it as well. So, Yeah, thanks, Brandon. It's been fun chatting. Yeah.